listening to Let There Be Light, a podcast where we shed light on difficult topics in the church today through history, science, theology, and our mutual love for Jesus. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. I'm Marlene, and I wanted to give you guys a little heads up about what you're going to be hearing in the next uh, 30 or so minutes. Um, And yes, I have my parakeets chirping in the background. So if you hear them, um, just say hi to Laverne and Shirley. Um, In this week's episode, we do talk a lot about sensitive issues in the church today regarding purity culture, marriage, sex, um, and different fairy tales and lies that we have been fed over the course of our lives. And I wanted to just give a little disclaimer in case there are little ears in the room or in case you're riding with your windows down listening to this podcast, the language could get a little spicy, get a little awkward if it's heard out of context. I also wanted to give you guys a heads up that our recording devices that we use to originally record the interview with Dr. Camden. Um, They do sound a little murky at times. It might come up a little bit quieter, a little bit louder. Um, We've tried our best to edit it, um, but we do have really good content in here. So we would really encourage you to listen throughout and, and we would really appreciate it as well because this did take a lot of work to put together. Um, so without further ado, here is Purity Rings, Myths, and Shame Oh My with Dr. Camden Morganti. Here today we have Dr. Camden joining us. Uh, she is a psychologist, writer, and speaker. Um, her social media is at Dr. Camden. And uh, we're going to start talking about Purity Culture. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. So I'm Dr. Camden Morganti. I'm a licensed psychologist. I'm in private practice and I also write and speak some. And my writing right now is focused on purity culture. Um, I started researching and writing about it a couple of years ago and I published an article um, for Christians for Biblical Equality. Um, That organization chose me as a winner of their writing contest for an article I wrote called The Five Myths of Purity Culture. And so that kind of got got me started as far as the the writing part. And now I'm writing a book proposal to write an actual like whole book on this topic. But what got me interested in it was just my own personal experience as well as my professional experience as a psychologist. Um, so I'm young, I'm in the 30s. I grew up in purity culture in like the late 90s and early 2000s and just really influenced by it. I read I Can Say Goodbye and I had a true love way to and I just, I really like bought into a lot of the myths and false promises um, that purity culture gave us um, and then became really disillusioned with it um, later on in my 20s. Um, on to grad school, got my doctorate in psychology, and then learned more about shame um, and how a religious upbringing and some faulty religious beliefs around sex can cause a lot of shame and dysfunction, sexual dysfunction for people. And so that's my professional interest in the topic too. Awesome. Okay. What sort of, I imagine, so you think you grew up like during the whole culture height when you know kissing dating goodbye was like the number one bestseller um, oh yeah well gotta love Joshua Harris um so when you kind of took your career in like this different 
I guess like turn or wavelength, whatever, um, what you want to call it. Did mm-hmm. people in your personal life, like, how did they react to that? Like ones who were like really into what pure, uh, purity culture like promised, like what, how did they react to that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the feedback I've gotten has been really positive um, mm-hmm. from people in my life and then just you know, people that read, um, read my stuff or follow me been positive because I think that many Christians right now are at a place where we're willing to look at the problems that purity culture caused and how it um, it left us with these empty promises but yet there really hasn't been a good alternative for that for, for, for many Christians um, and so that's my hope is to kind of fill that gap in the literature right now that not a lot of Christians who still believe in a sexual ethic of purity, not a lot of them are writing, criticizing purity culture, but offering a more healthier biblical alternative to it. Right, so true. I was just thinking, I don't think, I think one of the main reasons why we, and Sarah, you can jump in whatever, but why we were so excited to talk to you is because of just what you said, that there is that gap that no one Mm -hmm. seems to be talking about well, if purity culture and all these myths are wrong, well, then what is right? You know, what do we replace it with? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially as, um, I don't mean this is kind of leading into another segment, but especially as, you know, in our churches starting to have those conversations of, <laughs> hey, I don't think this is the right way to look at it. And then it's like, okay, well, then tell me what the right way <laughs> to look at it is. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have an alternative and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's what I feel like a lot of the books that have been written about purity culture that's what I feel like a lot of them do is they've really moved past this um, this more traditional Christian sexual ethic um, to a you know just a more progressive ethic I don't think that that works for everybody Um, not everybody wants to um, progress to that point so yeah so I hope to offer a healthier alternative I also was curious, reading through, because this has been something on my mind for a while, um, you talk a lot about egalitarianism um, Mm -hmm. and how it relates to like a healthy sexuality and freeing people from shame. Did you, I'm curious, did you grow up in an egalitarian context or church or how did you lean towards that? Yeah, I didn't even know those terms until probably my first year of grad school, um, the terms egalitarian or complementarian. Um, I don't know if I would classify my upbringing as, as either one. It was, it was pretty conservative Christianity, um, but there wasn't like this explicit use of those terms, I guess. Um, but I always kind of had the, a fiery person in that I wasn't like a traditional Christian woman and I wasn't you know happy with that um, that idea um and so in college I learned you could be a Christian and a feminist um and then in grad school I really dove deep into egalitarian theology and just fully subscribe to it and write a lot about it write a lot for Christians for biblical equality now um because I think I mean, I think that's just the, the healthiest way and the way that I feel is like most biblical. Yeah. Um, so getting getting back just a little bit to um, purity culture, there's a couple things from your article that I just thought were so good that I wanted to like kind of bring up and highlight um, while, mm-hmm. we ha- while we have you with us. Um, so in your article, 
um, you say, and this is one of the most like fascinating parts of it to me, because you actually put it into words, what I've been thinking for such a long time, but you say, mm -hmm. quote, proponents promise Christians that if we withhold just a little longer, our fairy tales will come true, complete with an amazing wedding night, sex, and lifelong sexual and marital bliss, unquote. Um, and that's something that I think has just been like ingrained in me without me actually realizing it. And when I was reading your article all these years later, that so resonated with me. And it got me thinking, like, why are we continually told this, like as young women? And why yeah. is that like never really truly come to fruition? Like I know a lot of girls growing up in the church who are married now, and a lot of them have confided in me that that is just not the truth. Their wedding night was very awkward for them. It took yeah. a long time for things to actually be enjoyable. Um, and so mm -hmm. I just felt like that's such an interesting, I guess, lie that we're mm -hmm. told. And I was just wondering to pick your brain, like, why do you think mm -hmm. that is? Yeah. So the question you read really encapsulated encapsulates two of the five myths that I identified about purity culture, um, which are the fairy tale myth and switch. Um, so the fairy tale myth is that your God will give you a spouse and you'll have a fairy tale marriage. And the flip switch myth is if you remain pure um, and avoid sex your wedding night, then the switch will flip and you'll have amazing, really easy, like just flip sex life. Mm -hmm. um, and so both of those are myths and both of those have been called the sexual prosperity gospel where we're really promising um, these, these things, these you know, these promises to people um, based on their actions. And um, we can't make faith into a transaction like that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we know that that's just not the way it works, that some people um, just don't get married um, and some people don't have an easy sex life where they get married and they struggle with infertility or sexual problems. And mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's used a lot in purity culture as a method of persuasion because um, sex sells, even if the message is abstinence, they're using sex and promoting like marital sex to sell the message of abstinence. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of using um, this, this empty promise to promote, um, promote purity, I think that we need to emphasize obedience to God's will and faithfulness um, to to his wills, to his teaching, and just this lifelong spiritual of purity and practicing that um, in whatever context we end up in, married or single. I really like that you said that, um, because this has been a topic really on my mind lately. Um, the fairy tale myth, <laughs> it's very pervasive. Um, mm -hmm. I think, especially as I've seen friends get married, I've heard them refer to, you know, their their spouses or their, their partner to be as you know their prince charming or their their lady and wait i heard one guy call her lady and waiting <laughs> yeah. that's not even a that's not i don't think that means what it means no i know <laughs> and i don't like that language but i think too something that i've noticed that's very damaging among um i've led groups of single women um and something that's very damaging that i've had a tough time responding to is the damaged goods myth mixed up with yeah. the fairy tale myth um mm -hmm. because it's just so the language is so casually thrown around like people will say you know I did this and that's why you know I didn't have any relationships for a lot of years or you know I know this girl and she had sex before marriage and that's why she's 
you know, and that's why she's in it. That's why she was in an abusive relationship later. Or, you know, I've even had some folks say like, use, use phrases like, you know, when you have sex before marriage, or you lose your purity, uh, whatever mm-hmm. that's like, then it's like bits of your soul go away. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and you never get them back. And I know, and I can see the people who haven't had sex before marriage and even myself just start, like they get terror behind their eyes. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, if I so much as look at a guy the wrong way, before I know it, um, it's all over. Uh, mm-hmm. And you just don't want to get into the dating world. And um, those consequences are just, they're really far reaching. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point that the damaged goods myth, like I mostly talk about how that affects people who who do have premarital sex is that there's this idea damaged goods and that and there's all these object lessons like your rose petals torn off of a rose or your mm-hmm. a glass of water that's been spit in by everybody you've had sex with you know um but that's a good point sarah that the damaged good goods myth could affect people who don't don't have premarital sex too if if they don't find their spouse as quickly as or easily as they thought they would they feel like what's wrong with me because i did all the right things quote and purity culture promised me um, my spouse and where his, where is he and I um or what rather what I fear and what I see people also falling for is you know if I do everything wrong then or if I perceive that I've done everything wrong then I mm-hmm. will never be married like I'm almost condemned to this lifetime of singleness which doesn't <laughs> bode well for how we talk about singles in the church it's an interesting it's an interesting tension yeah and we just we know that's not true by looking around at the people around us who who are getting married and who aren't like it's just there's no there's no definite formula where we see oh they're getting married because they did it right or they're not getting married because they made mistakes we that's just doesn't it doesn't pan out like that yeah so we need to stop heaping shame on people if things don't happen the way that they thought they would for themselves and then they feel like something's wrong with them i think also um what people to like tag along to this um what people what older women especially don't realize what they're doing when they're telling younger women this i had this um women's group like four or five years ago where one of my really close friends who now she's married and uh, she had just started dating her future husband and the woman who was leading our group was so excited. She like made an announcement like so-and-so is dating so-and-so guys. It's so exciting. And she said, you know, God brought you this relationship because he knew that you were like spiritually mature enough for it. And she like gave wow. her like, all this cred and whatnot. And you weren't searching mm-hmm. for it. God like dropped it, you or him in your lap. And it's so awesome mm-hmm. to see how he works. And it was just like, I remember sitting there and feeling like, uncomfortable and then also feeling like guilty like because mm-hmm. you mentioned that like you didn't pursue him he pursued you that's why you're together and this is going to be such a wonderful relationship you're such a grown-up Christian I know and I was like so if I talk to a guy is that wrong should I let my mm-hmm. hope be pursued and then what mm-hmm. I feel like what older women don't realize they're doing is they're causing kind of like jealousy between younger girls you know and kind of oh, yeah. like competition or you know um resentment mm-hmm. in a way and obviously that's a whole other um issue for them you know but I feel like that's just so irresponsible you know yeah yeah and that sounds like what that woman was saying is 
the myth that I call the spiritual barometer myth that if you mm-hmm. are pure, then you're a better Christian. Mm-hmm. And if you do sex, then you're not. That somehow our virginity is the barometer of how mature our heart is versus other character traits, other you know, values or expressions of our faith that we should be looking for. Definitely. Yeah. So that, yeah. And I can see how that caused a lot of just jealousy and competition. Um, because, you know, like I, like I shared, I was single for almost all of my twenties and was a bridesmaid six times. And just, oh, like, you know, I, I saw so many people getting married around me and it was, it definitely fostered a lot of jealousy and anger and comp- and pride. And like, you know, why, why don't I have this and they're getting it, you know? And so that, that spurred me on to study this topic more and to really dig deeper into my faith too and my theology. Something I was curious about, um, and I'm very interested, and I wonder if you'll be addressing this in your book or if you've um, looked into this at all, but I've been very affected by, I think a lot of young people have, but um, there's porn use is massive, a massive issue among just young adults in general in the church, Um, but Mm -hmm. it's not something that's talked about, and if there is, there's this huge stigma of shame and like, this idea that, you know, women need to be a certain way because of, in the church, otherwise, you know, will cause men to stumble and then they'll look into pornography or maybe it'll make the problem worse. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like the intersection of um, how difficult it is in the church for us to talk about porn use and purity culture, because it feels like there's a connection there. Yeah, because it's yeah. something to talk about. Let's not have sex, but like talking about like, I don't know, the immorality I feel like that comes with constant porn use you know yeah um yeah I definitely think it's very connected with shame but um so when we talk about sex in a healthy way in the church and the message that young people get is don't have sex until you're married then they're not given any kind of education um so they often could turn to porn as a way to get that education and the desire for the education and just you know, curiosity and more about your body and about your sexuality is normal um, and healthy to have that desire or that urge. Um, but it's just the church is doing a disservice when they don't, you know, help foster those healthy conversations and talk about it. Then, and then young people then look to porn to educate themselves, which is obviously not a realistic education. Um, yeah, so I can see how purity culture and just the church's overall messages about sexuality are connected with the problem of pornography. I will add that in my work as a therapist, um, and I've, you know, college professor too, I have encountered just as many young women who struggle with porn and masturbation, if they consider that a struggle too, just as many women as have young men. Um, So it really is something that's just really popular and like I said it's hard not for people not to turn towards that if they're not getting healthy education in another way. Exactly and I like that you specifically mentioned that women struggle with it just as often um, Mm -hmm. because I think there's this misconception um, that only men in the church struggle um, and that women don't and then like you talk about then women become you know sort of gatekeepers or whether men use or do not use, but women are just as likely <laughs> uh, to struggle. Um, and so then you have, you know, just everybody loses in that case. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and it adds more shame to women too. If they're only told that it's a male problem and then they experience that struggle, they're, they're like, mm. me, you know? So it just adds more shame. Whereas for men, not that there's not shame, but that it's maybe more socially acceptable to struggle with more as a man. Yeah, which is not okay either way. <laughs> Definitely shouldn't be as brushed off. Like, oh, that's acceptable. Because it's still not, even if it's a man. For sure. Um, so I wanted to share a quote that really stood out to me in your in your article, one of many, but I, I cut it down to just two so far. Um, so quote, the messages of purity culture are rooted in patriarchal theology and traditional gender roles. Sex is primarily to meet uh, men's sexual needs and urges, and women should perform their wifely duties cheerfully, willingly, and enthusiastically, unquote. So we... Think Sarah can agree. Yeah. We can't tell you how many times an older woman has spoken to us about sex. Um, a lot of the times without, you know, without us soliciting it, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, they've used the term wifely duties. So um, recently, I had a talk with a mother figure in my life, and she told me that she literally said, like, sex is something you always have to make available for your husband. And I asked her, I was like, well, what if you're just, you know, not in the mood? what if you had a bad day, you know, you're really emotional, upset, and she insisted that unless you have some sort of real illness, like a headache, or a flu, that you are obligated to sacrifice for your husband, according to your duties as a wife, <laughs> so it was like, basically fake it until you make it, like, literally, <laughs> so from my perspective, as a young single woman, the implication to me that my personality or my body cooperating would make me a bad wife. It does not make me want to get married, like ever. ever. I'm, I feel like I'm just like predis, uh, predisposed to just suck at it. Um, so, um, and it feels, it makes me feel like, and Sarah, you can jump into, like we're reduced to like, basically like more lively blow up dolls. <laughs> and, like that as wives, we're just like to weather and barely participate if, you know, cause it's our duty, if, even if we're not in the mood for it. So I guess my whole question in there for you is like for you as like a married Christian feminist, like mm -hmm. what do wifely duties mean to you? Like how do they differ from this if they do and, and why? Yes. Okay. I have so much to say to this question. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, first of all, this, the quote that you that you read from my article and that encapsulates the gatekeepers myth um, that women are the gatekeepers of men uh, that sex is for men um, that men can't help themselves and that women basically have to put the brakes on before marriage and be joyfully available after marriage um so when you yeah when you said wifely duties and so you sent this question to me an email today and I was thinking about it and I read it to my husband and I was thinking I have never even thought of the term wifely duties what are my <laughs> wifely duties <laughs> and, and I was thinking about it and talking with him and I thought my wifely duty is to pursue becoming more like Christ and a closer relationship with him every day mm. Woo. that is that the is best thing that I can do as a wife that is the best thing I can do for our marriage and for my husband is to become more like Christ. So it has, that has nothing to do with being, you know, available for sex all the time. So, um, yeah, so the emphasis is, should not be on, on, on sex. It should be on 
becoming more Christ-like and growing in your own, like your own spiritual growth and maturity. Um, that was my first, my first reaction to, to my wifely duties. Those are my wifely duties. Um, but as far as like the, the advice you guys have gotten from older Christian women, um, there's a couple of ways I wanted to approach it. One was theologically and one was psych psychologically. So theologically, um, we talked about how I um, align myself with egalitarian theology, which really emphasizes mutual submission. Mm -hmm. In my marriage, we are both looking for ways to love and serve the other and put the other one first. It's not one-sided. And I feel like a lot of the advice given to women, it's very one-sided. The woman is supposed to put the man first and serve the man, but it's not mutual. I know a lot of complementarians who would totally disagree with that definition. And like, it's it's funny because like, they would probably say, I, I'm thinking of one particular couple off the top of my head, but they would say like, they'd use, um oh gosh, Sarah, help me that verse from Ephesians, where it's like- Yeah, Ephesians 5. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where they would say like, the wife submits to the husband, the husband submits to God, and it's like a circle of like never ending like love and appreciation for one another, but the man is clearly higher. But they you it know. also never seems to practically work out that way though, to your point. Yeah. <laughs> like seem to work like ones that work well seem to work out in mutuality. Sure. Which is interesting. Right. And a lot of my writing has been about what does egalitarian look theology look like practically? You know, mm -hmm. like I'm not a pastor, I'm not like a, a theologian, but how right. does it look practically in marriage in real life? Um, but I think this verse has uh, this, I think this concept comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 6, which is the whole scripture about um, do not deprive each other of sex except for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. The wife's body belongs to the husband's and the husband's belongs to the wives. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of this advice comes from a poor interpretation of that verse and has been used to defend marital rape mm -hmm. and husbands having affairs and blaming the wife because she didn't have sex enough with him. And so it's her fault versus the man accountable, you know. So I was, I've been studying that verse some more and, and studying the theology behind it. And it's actually a really egalitarian um, verse to say... For Paul to say the husband's body belongs to the wife too, um, in a time when women were considered property, um, that's actually pretty revolutionary and pretty feminist of Paul. So I think the verse actually is telling us that we have a mutual sexual responsibility and that we both are giving to the other one. Um, so it's not just about the husband's privilege and the wife's duty, but it's about like mutual giving and mutual um receiving too i li i like how you broke that down i think that's super like super helpful um with particular situations like within a marriage i know like friends have probably shared too much with me like tmi well, i won't go into that but basically how it always seems like they're guilted into having sex when they don't want to have sex mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting I don't know it's just it's very interesting to me like what you mentioned when a man has affairs it's blamed on the woman for not yeah. having sex with him mm -hmm. and just kind of like what is 
I guess if if wifely duties doesn't extend necessarily to that because what you said like a mutual submission and love and respect for each other then mm -hmm. I'm kind of like where did do, where does that fit in I'm trying to like lost my question yeah well let me let me talk more or address this more from a psychological point of view um is that sex is more enjoyable for the couple and for the husband when the wife is interested so sure. it's actually better if both are interested and both are are into the idea. Um, but there are going to be times in a marriage where you just you can't have sex during late pregnancy and you know several weeks after you give birth you, you cannot have sex and times when men don't want to have sex either because of stress or because there's conflict in the marriage or um, they're tired or whatever so um it's really about both partners needs and both partners desires and not just one-sided so just practically like in marriage, I think you're not going to be, you know, a 10 from zero to 10 on sexual desire. You know, that's just, that's just not what it looks like. Times where you are, it's responsive desire and maybe you're responding to your spouse's needs or desires or to this desire to be close and to be connected with each other. Um, but it's, it should never be out of coercion or manipulation or force or um, obligation. Um, I think it really comes back to the, if I'm looking to um, mutually, you know, my husband and I are looking to mutually submit to each other and love and respect each other, um, that's where that's where it's coming out of. It's not coming out of obligation and force. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I think that's really encouraging. Um, probably going to be really encouraging to a lot of single women listening to this who've been given that same poor advice, because I know mm -hmm. when I was speaking to that mother figure in my life about sex and she explained it to me that way I was instantly less excited about getting married less excited about you know ever having sex one day because I was like well if it's just going to be my job I'm yeah. not going to be super excited about it you know like and also I hate the word duties like I just hate that word yeah <laughs> it should not feel like a duty or an obligation at all and so so the like the point I was trying to make is that, yeah, sometimes we do things that maybe we're not 100% in the mood for, you know, instead of others, um, whether that's just we listen to a friend who's going through a hard time, even though we're tired and we want to go to bed, or, you know, me, I play with my my little my little baby, I have a toddler, and I'm, I spend a lot of time playing with her, even though I don't always feel like it. So, you know, sometimes we do things that we're not 100% in the mood for, but it's not because we're forced to, or it's an obligation, or we're somehow failing as a, you know, as a wife or in our role if we don't do it. This idea of like mutual sacrifice, almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's encouraging to hear because it makes the marriage seem less, seem more equal. <laughs> Which is what it's all about. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in a, in a complementarian con uh, context, though I didn't mm -hmm. hear the term the term, I think, kind of like you, like complementarian or egalitarian until um, yeah. much later. Um, and yeah, they are the idea of there is this idea of mutual submission, but it was always on the woman's the burden on the woman. Um, yeah. And the idea of the trump card uh, as well. I don't know if you if you that term was something that was often used, which was like, you know, if a guy if if something's going really 
really wrong or there's a decision needs to be made or the guy just really needs sex, he can mm -hmm. play this card and she will have to submit. Um, yeah. And uh, it just, it leads to a lot of like, it leads to a lot of fear going, looking at marriage, uh, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's, there's a lot of tension too, because, you know, you're told to want marriage as the, almost the ultimate goal, but mm -hmm. then you fear it too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and Sarah, it's so funny that you mentioned that term because I wrote an article for CBE and you can find it on my blog called forget the marriage trump card. Wasn't specific to sex, but more like in decision making. A lot of complementarians say, like, well, when push comes to shove, the man holds the trump card and he needs to make the final decision. And so the article was kind of about mutual decision making. There's this, uh, there's this marriage is held up as the ultimate goal and idolized, but then there's also this fear because of the yeah, mixed messages that you guys hear that y'all are getting. Yeah. Sure. I'm kind of curious. Um, oh no, she got this, Dr. Camden, you don't know Sarah. Um, but she got this like, hmm, look on her face. And it, almost immediately after she has this look, something very troubling happens. <laughs> so, I apologize in advance. Go for it, Sarah. Well, I'm very curious um, as some, especially since we do have a licensed psychologist that we're talking to. <laughs> um, yes. If, I'm a single person in the church or I'm meeting other single women in the church um, or even as a married person in the church, if I have a question on sex or I'm concerned about how I relate to it or I've got a lot of shame, should I go to the Christian counselor at my church or should mm -hmm. I go to a licensed psychologist? Because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are torn whether they go to one, should they go to the other, should they go to both, is one too secular? This is this is a good question too, um, Sarah. And not to keep bringing up my articles, but I did write it <laughs> on how to find an egalitarian therapist. Um, and I just I talk about the different types of therapists and why you would kind of choose one over the other, and um, ultimately finding the right fit and how that's the most important thing. Um, so yeah, as far as your question, I hear that same concern and fear a lot from the egalitarian and Christian feminist communities that I'm a part of, of people preferring a secular therapist over a Christian therapist because they've just not really gotten good counsel before. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, it really depends on the, the problem that you're seeking therapy for and the kind of training and degree um, that the counselor has because Christian counseling is a very um, vague term. It's not like an official term. It's not an official license, so people can mean different things by it. Um, like, I'm a licensed psychologist. I have a doctorate in psychology, but I was also trained in theology and the integration of psychology and faith, and so I can do counseling. I can bring in Christian concepts into my professional therapy practice, um, but then some people call themselves Christian counselors, and that. Is, and they're more just, it's more like mentoring or spiritual direction or kind of like biblical counseling. So mm -hmm. it really depends on the issue you're seeking help for and do your research on the person that you're looking to see, what degree they have, where they went to school, what kind of training they have and what they specialize in. It's really important that who specializes in the issues you're seeking help for, whether trauma or religious issues or sexual issues you want to see somebody who's in areas that makes sense 
It does. And I saw too that you have, that you've done a series of articles on how to find the right mm -hmm. therapist and what to look for, yes. uh, which is awesome. And we're going to put that in our description because if I had had <laughs> that, if I had had known that that was a resource out there as a younger Christian who tried out both biblical counseling and um, legit, not, I don't want to use the word legitimate because both are legitimate. Licensed. Yeah. Licensed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it's, it's a tough, it's tough to know what to look for and when to look for different things. So mm -hmm. um, thank you, first of all, for, for writing those because they're very necessary. Yeah. It's something I'm passionate about because I want everybody to get the help that they need and they, you know, find a good fit for them. And there, there's a time and a place to see a more pastoral counselor. Um, but there's a lot of times and places to see a licensed therapist too. Thank you so much, Dr. Camden, for doing this episode with us. Um, I, I would really love it if this wasn't our only episode that we do together, if you're ever up for another one. Yeah. I think, like, um, Sarah's, like, researching our, all of everything on your website and bringing everything up, and I'm like, she did write about that? Oh, snap, now we need to do an episode with her on this. Yes, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, there's so many things we can talk about, and so, yeah, I would love to talk with y'all again if you ever have um yeah if you ever have the need to have me back on yeah I I think we absolutely will and thanks so much for reaching out to us and um I've just been so encouraged uh reading through your resources and talking to you um I took your quiz as well on your website you're such an overachiever I wanted to know what myth affected me the most <laughs> we're gonna have to link that in the caption now too yes. yes thank you but it was really helpful um because I didn't know what thought processes I had worked through and what processes thought processes still I still kind of instinctually held to um mm -hmm. so it's just been great to to work through and kind of identify you know undo uh you know I think years of growing up thinking a certain way and kind of moving forward into the freedom that scripture has for us in yeah. uh, our bodies and our sexuality. And um, I, I, like I say, at the end of a lot of our podcasts where they're yet unreleased, <laughs> uh, but that scripture has a lot more freedom than we think. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, we need to know it really well and follow and God's commandments are always for our good and never to harm us. Um, and there's also a lot of space there um, for us to, for a lot of freedom in ways that I think we don't expect. And I think that's an important message that you've kind of communicated yeah. as well. Going off what you said, like we can deconstruct some of these beliefs that we've grown up with without deconverting. Mm. Um, because I feel like deconstruction has gotten such a bad rap in you know, in, in Christian culture, because we've seen people, high profile people like Joshua Harris, who've come out and said, yeah. he constructed, but then he deconverted. He's no, he no longer considers Christian. And I don't think we need to be afraid of that. I think we can question our beliefs and we can explore the gray area and we can come out with a richer and deeper and truer faith. And that's what I feel like has happened for me. I'm still a Christian. 
Um, Like I've said in this podcast, I still believe in a biblical sexual ethic of purity and sexual faithfulness in marriage. Um, But yet I have gone through some of that deconstruction, that work of like analyzing my beliefs, um, my worldview and things like that. So yeah, let's not be afraid of that. Afraid to like take a look at the gray um, in our faith. That's awesome. Awesome message and exactly what we're what we're looking into. Yeah. What, uh, I like what you said, Dr. Camden, about uh, let's not be afraid to look at the gray in our face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is that. I love that. That's really yeah. cool. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for um, doing this episode with us. And I just know I'm so excited right now. I'm like geeking out because I know this episode is going to um, it's going to help so many people. Let me end by telling um, listeners where they can find me if they want to read some of this stuff. My website is drcamden.com, and that's drcamden.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram, the same handle, drcamden. Um, And on my website, as Sarah said, she took my free quiz, Which Purity Culture Myth Affects You? So it's based on my article, The Five Myths of Purity Culture, and you get to take this um, short quiz, and it'll identify which of the five myths um, you believe the most or have most affected you. So um, so yeah, I would love if listeners go and take that and let me know, you know their feedback and their results. Thank you.